Greetings and welcome once again to Author in the Room, a monthly program sponsored by JAMA, the Journal of the American Medical Association, and IHI, the Institute for Healthcare Improvement. My name is Dr. Shute, and I will be your moderator for today's call. We are delighted that you could join us today. As you know, Author in the Room calls are designed to translate new knowledge, what is published in a recent JAMA article, into actionable steps that can improve clinical practice and patient care. Author in the Room occurs on the third Wednesday of every month at 2 p.m. Eastern Time, with the next call being on July 15th. The article for that call is Cognitive Behavioral Therapy, Singly and Combined with Medication for Persistent Insomnia. Please join us. Several organizations have made Author in the Room a regular part of their learning experience, and we encourage everyone to do so. Today our featured author is Dr. Peter Huang, uh, first author of the article, a 51-year-old woman with acute onset of facial pressure, rhinorrhea, and tooth pain, uh, published in the May 6, 2009 issue of JAMA. Dr. Huang is an associate professor of otolaryngology at Stanford University School of Medicine. He serves as the chief of the division of rhinology and director of the fellowship program in rhinology and sinus surgery at Stanford. Dr. Huang received his undergraduate degree from Stanford and his MD from the University of California, San Francisco, where he also completed residency training in otolaryngology. After completing a fellowship in rhinology at the University of Pennsylvania, Dr. Huang served as director of rhinology at Oregon Health and Science University before moving to his current position at Stanford. He is the secretary of the American Rhinologic Society and a past member of its board of directors. He also serves as Associate Editor of the American Journal of Rhinology and Allergy. Welcome, Dr. Huang. Thank you. It's good to be here. And thank you for coming. As a moderator, it's my job to help focus our discussion on the application of Dr. Huang's research with a goal of driving performance improvement based on his article. The purpose of Author in the Room is for you to hear directly from Dr. Huang about his research findings and leverage those to improve patient care. Together, Dr. Huang and I will help you translate his research into improvements in your practice. Here's how the hour will proceed. Dr. Huang will spend about 15 minutes summarizing his findings. I will then take a few minutes to draw out some applications and the application for real-world practice. Then we will set the stage for your questions and comments. This is a great forum in which you get clarification on anything in the article itself by hearing directly from the lead author and to contemplate with others the significance of the findings and the steps you might take in using this information towards the improvement of patient care. Your participation, not just in terms of questions, but offering up your experience, is invaluable. There are approximately 20 phone lines connected to the call today, generally with several individuals participating per line. Some members of the media may be present on today's call on a background-only basis. One other note, this call is being recorded and will be made available on the IHI and JAMA websites as streaming audio or podcasts. Complete details and instructions are available under the program section of IHI.org. Prior author in the room calls are also available on those sites. Now let's get started. Let me again welcome our author, Dr. Huang, who will provide an overview of his recent article. Go ahead, Dr. Huang. Thank you very much, Dr. Xu. It's a uh, it's an honor to be here. Uh, I'd like to uh, begin with a, a general discussion about acute rhinosinusitis. And we really appreciate that this is a significant illness in terms of societal impact uh, and certainly in terms of health care resources. About 25 million office visits a year are directed towards the diagnosis of sinusitis, and it is the fifth most common diagnosis for which antibiotics are prescribed. That means that 7 to 12 percent of all antibiotic prescriptions are written for sinusitis. And for acute rhinosinusitis, we are talking about a $3 billion expenditure annually for antibiotics. And in addition to the healthcare resources that are expended, there is known to be a significant impairment of quality of life associated with acute rhinosinusitis that heretofore was not very well appreciated, but through quality of life measures that have been established for sinusitis, we do know that patients suffer quite a bit from this illness. Now, the sinuses uh, are four paired air-filled cavities that are located between the eyes and below the brain, and we don't really know 
why we have them, we do have some hypotheses about their function, including uh, pneumatization of the uh, airspace for resonance of the voice. Uh, we think that the sinuses may also uh, serve as protective uh, crumple zones to protect the eye and the brain from facial trauma. Um, and we do know that the sinuses are functional, so they do sweep out mucus out of the uh, lining of the sinuses with cilia, which are microscopic uh, hair cells, as you know, that sweep the mucus towards the nasopharynx, and then ultimately uh, these particles are swallowed. So the sinuses perform this function through narrow openings, approximately 2 to 4 millimeters in diameter. And when you have an insult, uh, an environmental insult or an infectious insult that creates swelling in these critical narrowings, this is the setup for sinusitis. Now, in this discussion, I'm going to use the term sinusitis and rhinosinusitis interchangeably, but understand that the preferred terminology is rhinosinusitis, and this is an acknowledgement that the inflammation associated with sinusitis not only involves the paranasal sinuses, but also the nasal cavity. And also note that the term sinusitis really refers to inflammation and not infection. So there can be non-infectious causes of sinusitis or rhinosinusitis, but today we'll be speaking about primarily the, the infectious causes, the viral and bacterial causes of rhinosinusitis. When we talk about uh, the diagnosis, uh, we also speak about temporal courses to help us uh, understand uh, the, to, or to distinguish acute versus chronic rhinosinusitis. And acute rhinosinusitis is typically uh, thought to be an illness that lasts less than four weeks. Chronic rhinosinusitis would be that lasting greater than 12 weeks. And then subacute rhinosinusitis lasting between four to 12 weeks. There's also another uh, category of uh, acute sinusitis termed recurrent acute sinusitis, uh, which refers to a patient who has normal periods between recurring episodes, uh, up to four episodes of acute rhinosinusitis per year. When we see a patient who presents with acute swelling in the nose uh, that we, we think to be uh, possible uh, sinusitis, we have to think that about the most probable etiologies, and indeed the incidence of acute viral rhinusitis, sinusitis is significantly more, significantly greater than the incidence of acute bacterial rhinosinusitis. Uh, most acute bacterial rhinosinusitis episodes actually will probably start with some form of an acute viral rhinosinusitis, and this is part of the difficulty in discerning the diagnosis of bacterial rhinosinusitis compared to viral. Uh, the bacterial infections are thought to be set up from stagnation of secretions that may result from a viral uh, etiology or some type of environmental insult or allergy that creates obstruction of the ostea, those narrow passages that drain the sinuses. This leads to mucus stagnation, which leads to mucociliary impairment and sets up a vicious cycle which creates a uh, healthy breeding ground for bacteria, and this will eventually transform some forms of viral rhinosinusitis to the bacterial form. The microbiology of acute rhinosinusitis, um, again, is predominantly viral, and when we look at the species of viral rhinosinusitis, we'll typically uh, see rhinovirus, influenza, and parainfluenza. When we talk about acute bacterial rhinosinusitis, the most typical organisms are streptococcus pneumonia and haemophilus influenza, although we may see more axella, uh, other strep species, and some anaerobes. Now, in terms of the diagnosis of acute rhinosinusitis, it is primarily a subjective diagnosis, and that is that we have to take a very careful history and evaluate the patient's symptoms. And we now have consensus diagnostic guidelines that help us to make these, uh, this diagnosis. So in 2007, uh, a consensus uh, guideline was published in the journal Otolaryngology Head and Neck Surgery, and uh, this is an excellent document that reviews uh, all of the evidence uh, up to that point uh, and came up with consensus guidelines. And the consensus uh, 
diagnostic guidelines for history and symptom-based diagnosis of acute sinusitis uh, is based on cardinal symptoms of less than four weeks duration. So there are two main uh, categories of cardinal symptoms. First, purulent rhinorrhea. The second cardinal symptom is either facial pain and pressure or nasal obstruction. So if a patient presents with purulent rhinorrhea and either facial pain or nasal obstruction, this is more likely to be acute sinusitis. Now we can't discern based on these diagnoses alone, or sorry, based on these symptoms alone, whether a patient has viral or bacterial sinusitis. There will be uh, some secondary symptoms as well, uh, and these are suggestive but not required for the diagnosis of acute rhinosinusitis. These would include headache, anosmia, fatigue, ear fullness, dental sensitivity, cough, and fever. And the history is going to be supplemented by physical examination. So some of the things that may indicate acute rhinosinusitis would be uh, rhinoscopy indicating significant mucosal edema. Uh, there may be oropharyngeal discharge. Uh, there may be some tenderness to facial palpation. Techniques such as transillumination and maxillary puncture are not uh, widely uh, used, especially the transillumination for its uh, relative uh, non-specificity and maxillary puncture for its invasiveness and morbidity. But uh, positive physical exam findings can support the diagnosis of acute rhinosinusitis, but again, they're not required elements of the diagnosis. Uh, in terms of other uh, means to diagnose acute rhinosinusitis, radiologic uh, tests would be probably the one that most physicians would also consider. But really, uh, plain films and CT scans are not likely to be helpful. And the reason for this is that in the acute setting, CT scans and plain films are very likely to be positive, and they cannot differentiate viral versus bacterial infections. Uh, one notable study that was very helpful in our understanding of the radiologic appearance of acute rhinosinusitis uh, was a study that was published in the New England Journal in 1994 by Gwaltney. 31 patients were inoculated uh, with virus, and they were imaged <clears throat> after developing a full-blown viral upper respiratory tract infection. And these patients were then scanned with a CT scan, and 87% of these patients showed maxillary sinus mucosal thickening. 77% of these patients showed ethmoid sinus abnormalities. But after two weeks, 80% of the findings on radio radiologic examination cleared. So a positive CT scan taken in the acute setting does not necessarily tell us that a patient has uh, viral versus bacterial sinusitis. And so in general, we don't recommend radiologic examinations in the acute setting unless we're concerned about a patient who presents with uh, the possibility of complication of acute sinusitis. Uh, referring back to the patient who's in the article, this is a patient who presented with rhinorrhea, facial pain and pressure, and some nasal obstruction, and her symptoms were of five days duration. So if we look at these cardinal symptoms, she does meet the cardinal symptoms of purulent rhinorrhea uh, being one of them, and then she meets of uh, the second cardinal symptoms, she meets both of them, the facial pain and pressure and the nasal obstruction. So, uh, and her duration of symptoms is less than four weeks. So we can say that this patient does have acute rhinosinusitis, but when we make treatment decisions, particularly whether to start antibiotics, what we'd really like to know is does this patient have acute bacterial rhinosinusitis? And at five days, we really don't have enough clinical information to say. So whether Mrs. D has acute viral or acute bacterial rhinosinusitis, it's really uncertain at the time of presentation. Looking at the data, the evidence for treating patients with acute rhinosinusitis and the outcomes of that, uh, we, we tend to see groupings of outcomes that uh, around the 10-day time point, such that patients with acute symptoms of less than 10 days duration tend not to improve with antibiotics versus placebo. And patients in clinical trials uh, where the symptoms are greater or equal to 10 days tend to have an improvement. 
And we know that the natural course of acute viral rhinosinusitis is one that typically will resolve uh, between 7 to 10 days, whereas with bacterial rhinosinusitis, about 40 to 60% of patients will resolve within 10 days, but the remainder will continue to be symptomatic beyond 10 days. So again, 10 days, uh, the day 10 of illness serves as a very important breakpoint in the diagnosis and treatment of bacterial rhinosinusitis. In the first five days, as uh, in the time uh, in which Mrs. D presents, there's really very, very uh, similar overlap of symptom presentation between bacterial and viral rhinosinusitis. Uh, between five and ten days, you start to see some differentiation. And there may be some patients who present with what's called double worsening. So they uh, present as if they have a viral infection. They seem to get better, but then they get worse again. And this is what uh, researchers have described as double worsening, so a second, almost a relapse of symptoms. And that suggests bacterial rhinosinusitis. And that may be an indication for treating before the 10-day period if there's clearly double worsening. Um, but again, if a patient is improving in the 5- to 10-day period, uh, even if they have acute bacterial rhinosinusitis, this patient may just be one of these 40 to 60% that has spontaneous resolution and may not need antibiotic intervention to have complete resolution of their symptoms. So we choose this 10-day breakpoint uh, in terms of our decision-making for uh, administration of antibiotics, and this is supported by the literature. The other uh, determinants for just, uh, whether we should start antibiotics or not beyond the 10-day uh, breakpoint is the severity of the presentation. So a patient with mild severity uh, and uh, more than 10 days uh, of symptoms may still be observed. However, a patient with fever, prostration, and clear distress with symptoms of less than 10 days may certainly merit the initiation of antibiotics even though they haven't met that 10-day uh, breakpoint. And so when we look at the uh, literature uh, of randomized clinical trials, there are many, many clinical trials. It's difficult to sort through the literature, primarily because of a very wide range of diagnostic criteria that are used in these clinical trials. So uh, the standardization of the diagnosis of acute rhinosinusitis from uh, a research standpoint only was consolidated in the last several years. So if you look at older studies and even some of the more recent studies, you may see that um, the diagnostic criteria are different from what I've presented, and you need to incorporate that uh, consideration in your interpretation of the data. But looking at meta-analyses, we definitely see that selective use of antibiotics does shorten the duration of illness, increases the rate of improvement or cure versus placebo. And uh, overall, if we look at uh, an aggregation of the meta these meta-analyses, we can see that there's an absolute rate increase of 15% in improvement or cure when antibiotics are given, so that the number of patients needed to treat for the incremental improvement is seven patients. Uh, one other consideration for initiating antibiotics before 10 days, I mentioned the patient with severe symptoms. Um, also, patients with uh, a history of immunocompromise or patients in whom we are suspicious of impending complications. These patients, we certainly don't want to miss. Uh, the complications of acute sinusitis, although they are relatively rare, are very serious and they can include meningitis, they can include orbital abscesses, there may be uh, threatened vision. And so patients who present with severe symptoms may actually merit radiologic evaluation um, in these particular cases or uh, aggressive intervention with antimicrobials. Uh, so to summarize, the 10-day uh, uh, break point is our current uh, standard for initiation of antibiotics. Um, if a patient has mild symptoms at 10 days, it is still valid to uh, choose an observational option for up to seven days beyond the 10 days. Um, this would be ideal for patients who are reliable, who will contact you if uh, they worsen, and you should prepare to treat the patient if they have worsening beyond the 10 days. Uh, the other uh, suitable option is treatment initiation with antibiotics. 
and this would typically be uh, amoxicillin, although there are other, uh, many other antibiotics that have been validated in the literature, including amoxicillin clavulanate, uh, trimethoprim sulfa, clarithromycin, and cefuroxime. And choice of antibiotic may be uh, influenced by prior exposure to antibiotics. So if, uh, if the patient has had previous antibiotics in the prior four to six weeks, you may move towards better coverage of beta-lactamase uh, or penicillin-resistant strep. Uh, and we would tend to reserve uh, antibiotics such as the quinolones for very severe cases or patients who, are, who have known resistances. Uh, one final comment on the role of the otolaryngologist. I am an otolaryngologist by training, and in general, we don't see a lot of acute sinusitis. This is really something that is primarily dealt with in the primary care uh, context. However, uh, the otolaryngologist can be very helpful to the primary care physician, uh, first in the evaluation of uh, the patient who has severe symptoms um, for the discernment of potential complications, but also in the ambulatory patient who is not severe. If a patient has already been through several cycles of antibiotics and still is symptomatic, the otolaryngologist can perform a nasal endoscopy, which is a very non-invasive diagnostic exam of the nasal cavity. And we can sample purulent secretions from the middle meatus that are very representative of the bacteriology of the maxillary sinus. So we don't need, no longer need to perform punctures of the maxillary sinus, which are very uh, uncomfortable for the patient, but we can obtain good specimens that truly reflect the uh, flora of the sinuses. And this is in contrast to swabbing the nasal cavity, which tends to lead to contaminants um, that are present in the nasal vestibule. So uh, your otolaryngologist uh, is your friend in this situation, and uh, it's good to keep that in mind, that they can uh, augment your uh, diagnostic capabilities based on the endoscopy uh, and uh, the ability to culture so that we can uh, provide more directed antimicrobial therapy for these patients. Dr. Shute, I'll turn it over to you at this point. Great. Thank you, Dr. Huang, and thank you first for, I think, a wonderful review of what is, for most of us in the world of primary care, a very common problem, and one where I think there is really an evolving standard of what to do. So from my perspective, this gives us uh, great clarity um, with really how to proceed in what's a pretty common problem. So thank you very much. Now I think I want to turn to thinking a little bit about how that research, your research or how your, your great summary changes what I should do in my clinical practice. And I am, of course, an internist um, and on the front line of dealing with this. Um, and so, you know, one of my questions is, um, for you specifically, is, you know, how it, might this change how we manage somebody in the office? You know, specifically, uh, the diagnosis based on the criteria is purely based on history. Uh, and as I'm thinking about redesign in primary care, more efficient ways to care for patients, one of the things that, that pops up in my thinking is, do I even need to bring these patients in for an office visit? Right. Can I save them the office visit? Can I save them the time and simply manage them over the phone? Any thoughts about that, Dr. Huang? Yeah, I think that's very reasonable if, if it's a patient that you know uh-huh. Uh, and they're reliable, and you can, um, you know, you can gauge how sick they are over the phone, which, you know, we often do with our uh, triage process. Um, I, I do think that's reasonable because uh, many of these patients, if you know that the duration of symptoms is five days or less, the only time that you're really going to need to intervene is if they're really toxic um, or they have some other comorbidity that makes you concerned that this is, could be a rapidly evolving infection. So right. clearly if a patient right. is a transplant patient um, or uh, a patient who has other uh, significant comorbidities, maybe a diabetic, you know, maybe these patients you would want to eyeball before saying you don't need to be treated. Sure. Um, but those are the exception, and uh, I think we have a, an increasing body of uh, uh, literature that supports that, that in the first, uh, certainly in the first five days, there are 
few situations that really require uh, antimicrobial intervention. Uh, five to ten days, it's a little trickier, uh, uh-huh. and you have to look out for the double worsening. Um, you may have patients who um, are presenting with a little bit more severe symptoms, and then it becomes a little bit of a softer call. But uh, certainly, again, because this is history-based, um, I do think a lot of this could be managed over the phone. And uh, that was actually a point of discussion um, at the uh, Beth Israel Grand Rounds when, when I presented this. I think they were looking to modify their triage protocols, and and this very point came up that a lot of this is uh, history, and a lot of this can be just obtained by talking to the patient. Well, great. Well, thank you for reinforcing that, and I think that's particularly relevant in the changing world of primary care. You know, you raise the issue of triage protocols, so that raises another question. You know, is this a condition you think can be safely managed uh, by an RN with appropriate management protocols? Um, I'm talking now, again, over the phone, or is this something where you think necessarily an MD or a DO needs to be involved? Uh, I would say if the protocol includes all of the uh, cautionary elements, uh, uh, that you could certainly write that into a protocol. I think that is very reasonable. I'm not aware uh, that this has been tested um, in terms of in a research setting, but uh, there aren't that many uh, caveats. Mm-hmm. Especially again in the first seven, five to seven days. So, right. Um, I, I do think that's reasonable. And if you have someone who's been symptomatic from seven to fourteen days, um, you'd either have to have a very uh, well delineated stepwise uh-huh. protocol, or perhaps uh, someone at the level of a nurse practitioner or or above to uh, to make that decision. Perfect. All right. Well, Dr. Huang, thank you so much. Uh, now let's turn to questions from our callers. And I would invite questions that either, uh, you know, speak to the implications of the research or specifically how we can apply that to make improvements in our practices. And I would invite callers to please feel free to share examples of what what you've tested, what you've already done, or what you may do, uh, what you're considering doing uh, with the information uh, in Dr. Huang's research. Uh, I'd like to turn it now back over to Sarah, who will talk a little bit of, about the flow of how this is going to work. Sarah. Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, at this time, if you'd like to ask a question, please press star 1 on your telephone. If you're joining us using a speakerphone, we ask that you please release the mute function. Once again, that is star 1 if you have a question or comment today. Great. Well, thank you. And while we're waiting for questions in the queue, I guess I have one other question for you, Dr. Huang. You you talked uh, about, a, you know, the preference for amoxicillin as a first-line agent. You mentioned another of other reasonable alternatives. One thing I didn't hear you mention was azithromycin, and azithromycin is quite commonly used uh, in our part of the world anyway for acute rhinosinusitis. Any evidence uh, as to whether we either should or should not be using that agent? Um. Yeah, I, I can't give you the exact percentages, but there have been some mathematical models, and azithromycin ends up somewhere in the middle hmm. uh, on the order of the uh, first-generation cephalosporins in efficacy. And this is, again, compared to placebo, which we accept to be at 40 to 60% placebo. Um, the, uh, the effect of azithromycin, I think, is partially anti-inflammatory. Uh-huh. Uh, because the macrolide categories, including azithromycin, have uh, collateral anti-inflammatory properties that I think help with their efficacy. And whereas the pharmacokinetics and pharmacodynamics of the macrolide may not be favorable for treating an acute infection, um, such as acute sinusitis, I think that it's helped by the additional anti-inflammatory properties. So um, I do think that you can find literature to support these of azithromycin. Um, I wouldn't say that it would be my first-line choice. Um, I have some concerns about uh, evolving resistance to uh, indiscriminate use of uh, azithromycin. Um, because of its long half-life, um, you can see that documented in certain populations where azithromycin was marketed heavily, and you could see um, that the resistance patterns followed the use, almost like the pressure of azithromycin and the resistance 
profiles was seen several months after um, the uptick in use of azithromycin. Certainly, that's something to be concerned about with all uh, antibiotics. Yes, because of the uh, sustained half-life at potentially subtherapeutic levels, I think that's a, something to, to be concerned about with uh, azithromycin. Great. Well, thank you for those comments, and I don't. We'd love to hear from callers in other parts of the world, but at least in the Pacific Northwest, that's become a very popular drug in primary care. Well, Sarah, I'd like to check in. Do we have any callers in the queue at this time? We do have one question in the queue, but once again, it is star one, please. And from Hawks Bay, we'll go to David Grayson. Go ahead, David. Uh, good afternoon to you. Good, good morning from our part of the world. Ah. And Dr. Wang, uh, we look forward to meeting you in Fiji. You're coming to talk to our conference uh, of ENT surgeons in Fiji. Right. My, my question is around um, the role of biofilms in the acute setting. We know all about it from chronic sinusitis. Uh, and if you could just make a comment if, if there is any sort of feeling about the role of biofilms in the acute setting and also treatment. You mentioned about saline and maybe just to comment about the use of soapy solutions like Johnson's Baby Shampoo, which we're increasingly using. Sure. Um, wonderful. And Dr. Pong, before you start, can you fill in uh, the callers on what he means by the biofilms? Yeah, absolutely. So uh, one of the uh, concepts that's uh, become of more interest in uh, infectious disease, particularly in the head and neck area, has been this concept of biofilms. And uh, what a biofilm is, it's an organized community in which bacteria can live. And certain uh, bacteria are more uh, uh, prone to developing these biofilm communities, uh, bacteria such as uh, Staph and Pseudomonas. And what the bacteria will do in a biofilm is lay down complex layers of uh, glycocalyx, and that will allow the bacteria to lie dormant at the base of these very organized essentially slime layers, and the nutrients can be directed down to the bacteria. They can lay in a dormant state, and it's thought that because of the protective biofilm, uh, the bacteria have an increased uh, resistance to antimicrobial therapy, uh, in part because of the difficulty of penetrating these biofilms. So this has become more of an issue in terms of understanding the role of biofilms for uh, medically refractory infectious diseases. Um, we see this. Uh, it has been documented in acute and chronic uh, sinusitis. And speaking to the um, the potential role of biofilms in acute rhinosinusitis, since that's our topic today, um, there are animal models that show that uh, bacterial biofilms do develop in rabbits when the maxillary sinus is inoculated with bacteria. Now, whether the biofilm is clinically significant or not, I think remains to be seen in the acute sinusitis model. Uh, and, and that's because we know that, again, 40 to 60% of acute bacterial rhinosinusitis will resolve without any type of uh, um, antimicrobial therapy. So it could be that the body's own protective uh, defenses, such as uh, mucociliary clearance, um, such as local innate immunity, um, may be sufficient to break down the biofilms. And when we're looking at more protracted infections, um, certainly uh, if we identify <coughs> Pseudomonas, for which in the community practice would be very uncommon uh, bacteria associated with acute rhinosinusitis, then certainly we're going to uh, choose more aggressive antimicrobial therapy. Um, the use of other things such as irrigations um, uh, and baby shampoo, which is actually known to be a surfactant that can break down biofilms, uh, they can be helpful, um, although the evidence for the adjunctive therapies doesn't substantiate them as shortening the duration of illness. Um, adjunctive therapies really... Um, help patients feel better, but doesn't actually necessarily uh, shorten the duration of illness in acute rhinosinusitis. I think we're going to be seeing a lot more uh, research in the area of biofilms, though, because uh, biofilms are actually uh, a significant component of infectious diseases in all parts of the body and not just in the head and neck. Thank you very much. Do you have any follow-up questions? No, sounds like not. So, so 
Let me ask you, Dr. Huang, about specifically the use of nasal saline. Um, that's available, obviously, in a spray. There's a procedure that many people use here called a necky pot. I just heard you say that's not been proven to shorten duration. Right. Talk to us a little bit more about symptom control, if you would. Sure. So the neti pot uh, became a household word after it was featured on the Oprah Winfrey Show. And uh, this is uh, now something that a lot of my patients will come in on already. Um, and uh, it is one uh, way of cleansing the sinuses. Um, understand that if a patient has not had surgery, uh, it's very difficult to penetrate the sinuses where the infection is, but because acute rhinosinusitis involves, again, not only the sinuses but also the nasal mucosa, uh, clearing mucus from the nasal cavity can be um, very helpful for symptom relief. So uh, there are a number of ways that we can do that. Uh, saline sprays uh, simply moisturize the nose and may facilitate uh, ciliary function, but irrigations tend to be a little bit more effective. Um, the neti pot is a passive irrigation system um, using saline, and the patient uh, will pour it. It looks like a little teapot. They'll pour it in one nostril, and it'll drain out the other nostril or out the mouth, and they lean over a sink. So it's really a passive uh, irrigation process. Um, there are active uh, squeeze bottle type ir uh, irrigation systems that I actually prefer, and uh, patients can buy these over the counter. No prescription is required. They can make their own saline, and then they can use a pulsatile irrigation to move the mucus through. Um, so that's one commonly used adjunctive uh, treatment. Um, I do use this a lot in pregnant patients uh, because of potential restrictions on other medications. Uh, when you don't have access to the other adjunctive therapies, saline is certainly um, safe and, uh, and, and easily uh, obtained and easily used. Uh, the other adjunctive therapies that we would use for acute rhinosinusitis would be the decongestants. And topical and oral decongestants are acceptable. Uh, I I think patients will tend to feel that the topical decongestants are more effective because the decongestant effect is more acute. But we do have to be careful about the development of rebound rhinitis. When a patient has used the uh, decongestants uh, daily for more than five to seven days, um, there is a risk that they become, quote-unquote, addicted to it, that they actually become physiologically dependent on the topical exposure of the alpha-adrenergic agent, and when they withdraw the use of the alpha-adrogenic agent, they have a rebound effect where they actually become more swollen. And so we always tell our patients to discard the bottle after five days um, with the top topical forms. Um, with the oral forms, there is no uh, rebound rhinitis that's known. And so these are safe except for patients who have, may have labile hypertension, uh, and these patients would need to be monitored carefully if we begin oral decongestant therapy. Uh, antihistamines are often prescribed, but there really isn't good data to support their use. Some clinicians think that it actually may thicken the mucus. Um, I would only use antihistamines if I knew that a patient had significant HP in addition to the acute rhinosinusitis, and there may be a role for antihistamines in those patients. But for garden variety acute rhinosinusitis, uh, antihistamines really aren't, have not shown uh, to be effective. Well, great. Well, thank you very much. Sarah, do we have any other callers in the queue? We do. We have one more, and that will come from Andrew Miller with HQSI. Go ahead, Andrew. Hi, thank you. I'm calling from Healthcare Quality Strategies. We're the Medicare Quality Improvement Organization for the state of New Jersey. Um, and one of our responsibilities is to respond to complaints from Medicare beneficiaries about care, that, the medical care that they receive. Um, and I'm not in clinical practice, um, but I am a physician. And a typical, this strikes me as the, the, the case um, that you started with here, strikes me as the kind of complaint that we get where the patient has a sinus infection, may have a history of sinus infections, calls a physician who follows the, uh, you know, the evidence-based guidelines and what you've talked about, Dr. Wong, um, and uh, is told by their physician, you know, you don't need to take antibiotics, uh, and they then wait a few days, they're not getting better, so let's say this is the patient who happens to have a bacterial uh, infection. Um, they call another physician, get antibiotics, get better, 
Um, or maybe they happen to be one of the ones who would have gotten better by that point anyway. And now they call us to say the first doctor didn't treat me appropriately. So the question is, <laughs> you know, how do you deal with that patient who, you know, who has a history, who thinks they know what they need? Um, how do you educate them about uh, what's the appropriate treatment for their yeah. Uh, so great question. Yeah, Andrew, I just want to thank you for that question and, and say personally I can sympathize because I served as medical director for the Oregon QIO for a number of years. Um, and I, you're obviously bringing this from the perspective of how do you retrospectively review a complaint. But I, I love your question is saying how do we educate patients up front um, so, number one, they're not unhappy, but number two, we get them really on our side, if you will, in terms of pursuing evidence-based guidelines. So, thank you for your question. Dr. Wong. Uh, that's a great question, uh, and I think that part of it is in how you frame it to the patient. Uh, certainly, if you said to a patient with, who has symptoms for five days and said, you don't need antibiotics and that's the end of the visit, you know, they may not be satisfied because in their mind they may have expected the medication and then... I told you so, five days later, I'm still symptomatic and I needed the antibiotics. But instead, I think a better way of framing it is, well, at this point, you may have a bacteria, you may have a virus, um, you may not need antibiotics. My hope is that you don't. But in five days, if you still have these symptoms, this is what we should do, and this is what I'm thinking. So that the physician has a plan, and they're intentionally following this plan, and at this point in the plan, the plan is not to, to prescribe antibiotics, but that at a certain point in the future, it would be appropriate to do that. And I think if a patient left the office with that in mind, I think that they would actually feel satisfied that, you know, the doctor hasn't written them off. It's just that the plan is that not to treat at this time. The other thing I think that's helpful is, and I think that patients are actually educating themselves in this way, too, is to expand on, on the, the virtues, if you will, of not taking antibiotics. Um, and I think a lot of my patients are very relieved. I tend to see the chronic sinusitis patients. So they're actually relieved if I tell them they don't need to be on antibiotics. And so we can talk about things like adverse side effects. We can talk about things like resistance. And uh, patients are, I think, much more knowledgeable and savvy about these types of issues now. And if we spend a moment to educate the patient about the advantages of not being on an antibiotic at this time, um, that can be very helpful in um, creating a satisfactory patient encounter. Thank you, Dr. Huang. I'd like to add a couple things to that. I think some tricks I've learned over the years um, is when you do set that expectation that 10 days is really the cut point for initiating antibiotics. Um, I'll often say to a patient, um, just call me. Uh, if you get there, you don't need to come back. We're happy to send one in, and if you're still having these symptoms at 10 days, just give a call and we'll get you set up. And, and that seems to really help patients, uh, number one, reassure them that they're not going to need to have another encounter with the healthcare system, uh, but that there is a pretty clear point in time when they can look forward to antibiotics if that's what they really need. Um, another trick that actually came out of some nice another research at Oregon Health Sciences University was trying to divert, defer antibiotics for children with ear infections. And they tested something called a wait-and-see prescription or a WASP prescription. And the intervention there is you actually give the parent, in this case, the prescription for the appropriate drug and the conditions under which they would fill it. Uh, but you leave it actually to the patient or the parent's discretion when you do that. And, and the findings were quite interesting. Um, only about a third of those um, parents filled the prescription and the satisfaction was very, very high. Uh, so that I think to me a couple conclusions is uh, in that setting, patients really feel like their needs were met. And in fact, with appropriate education, most of them choose to do the right thing. So I, I would throw the WASP prescription out there as an idea. And I guess I'd invite you, Dr. Huang, to respond to that. I, mean, I think that's a great idea. Um, I think... Um and again, if it's a patient that you have a good relationship with, I mean, that's a great way to go. And, and perhaps we do need to provide more printed material. You know, these guidelines are pretty easy for patients to follow as well as physicians or physician extenders to follow. And, uh, you know, if this is something that you expect to see a lot of, you know, in a certain season of your practice, uh, you know, winter's coming and you're going to see a lot of acute uh, infections, um, why not print up a little 
piece of paper you know, that kind of lays it out. And uh, there are resources on the web, either through the American Academy of Otolaryngology. I think the American Academy of Family Practice also has material like this um, that you can use in your practice, and I think that, that goes a long way to educating the patients. I think really what patients want is validation of their symptoms, and not necessarily uh, the antibiotic for that, but an understanding that this may require treatment at some point, and, and here's my plan. And I, and I think that that's what they're really looking for. That's a great suggestion. Andrew, any follow-on questions or comments? Andrew's no longer with us. Um, you know, one other thought about the tape. Hello? I'm, I'm sorry. I, I am still here. And uh, thank you. No, that was a, a great answer. Great. Thank you. You know, uh, Dr. Huang, I had another thought about actually educational materials for patients at point of service is great. Um, there's a growing initiative in our community to educate patients about inappropriate use of antibiotics or appropriate use, as the case may be. Another idea may be to have educational pieces on acute rhinosinusitis in the waiting room right? so that actually patients can read about this even when they're not sick. Um, it may reduce the frequency of unnecessary calls or unnecessary office visits in season. And it would give patients a great alternative for reading materials other than um, what sometimes we find in physician offices. I would wholeheartedly agree with that. <laughs> Great. All right. Sarah, any other questions in the queue at this time? We have a follow-up from David. Great. Go ahead, David. <laughs> Sorry, but nobody else is calling. That's and wonderful. Just, Thank you. Just a, a query uh, perhaps about um, the time frames we're talking, uh, the um, 5 to 10 days and the 7 to 14. I presume probably if we're looking at uh, children in the pediatric setting, probably would we be still saying those same time frames? And the other thing I just wanted to if, uh, comment on, a uh, recent sort of study I think coming out of Texas about um, sinus, rhinosinusitis as a uh, sole cause of toxic uh, shock syndrome in children in the pediatric setting. Yeah, I'm aware of that article, and I'm sorry I can't comment on it because I didn't actually have a chance to read it uh, in detail. But, um, you know, in kids, um, I mean, certainly if you look at the incidence of uh, viral sinusitis, you know, kids, I'm sure, account for a vast proportion of those. But um, in, in particular reference to this uh, the article that I wrote, it was really looking at adults. Yeah. And um, so I don't want to actually... You know, provide any specific recommendations in kids, although I have my own opinions. But in terms of the what the evidence shows, I can't really tell you exactly, um, you know, if there were any meta-analyses or randomized clinical trials in kids. Um, I would think that they would be similar, but the data that we presented, it was in adults. Um, so I think you can probably extrapolate, but at this point, without access to those papers, I, I want to try to just refrain from that. But similar issues do come up in terms of educating um, oh yeah, the patient or the patient's family, and uh, and probably you know the overuse of antibiotics in the context of viral infections, I, I'm sh certain is um, at least as rampant as uh, amongst adults. Thanks very much. That's fine. Great. Thank you, David. Sarah, any more questions at this time? Not at this time. Great. Well, that's wonderful because I do have one more for you, Dr. Huang. You know, one of the you mentioned. Um, treating with antibiotics at any hint of complications, and you were really, I think, referring to complications um, in the area of the sinus itself. Uh, sometimes we will, we will be treating patients with other medical conditions such as uh, emphysema, chronic lung disease, reactive airway disease, and I think there's a sense that very oftentimes upper respiratory infections uh, can be potent triggers of asthma. And so do you have any advice or is there any evidence about the guidelines for treatment and with antibiotics in patients that have some kind of respiratory condition? I'm not aware of specific guidelines. Um, I certainly, we certainly see um, this uh, concept of unified airway disease more and more manifest in our practices, especially for patients who have chronic conditions, so chronic sinusitis and chronic uh, pulmonary disease, you know, bronchiectasis or, or recurrent bronchitis. Um, so certainly the upper and the lower respiratory linings uh, can be equally, or, or one can cause the other, or both can be equally affected by some sort of uh, viral or bacterial insult. Um, I don't know that there are specific recommendations, but certainly if a patient presents with um, 
signs of bronchitis and are and may have borderline symptoms of sinusitis, um, the coverage of your antimicrobial choice is going to be very similar. Um, so you get two birds with one stone, um, even though perhaps you know a patient may not have met the strict ten day criteria. Again, comorbidities will shift you um, perhaps towards earlier intervention. Great. Well, thank you for that comment, and thanks again. Uh, unfortunately, that's all the time we have for questions today, uh, but it's a great topic, and it's been absolutely a wonderful discussion of both the issues specifically addressed in this article um, and a number of, obviously, surrounding clinical questions that come up. So, um, again, I want to thank you, Dr. Huang, and I want to give you an opportunity, really, for any closing thoughts or comments, uh, either about... Uh, the implications of your article or things that came up today. Dr. Huang. Uh, well, thank you, Dr. Shute. Um, I've been, really enjoyed the discussion. Um, I think the points that I was hoping to convey have um, come up uh, through the discussion and through the questions, and really that is that the bottom line is um, judicious use of antimicrobial therapy, but also helping our patients understand our decision-making process so that we do have this very satisfactory uh, patient encounter that it's it's uh, that we're seeing as collaborating with our patients rather than withholding something that they're seeking, and I think when we can educate our patients and promote some of these guidelines that have uh, now been published, um, that will help our patients to understand um, the rationale and and actually um, unify um, our our goal of getting our patients better. Great. Well, thank you, Dr. Hong, again for your participation in today's call and for the enlightening discussion. To our callers, as a reminder, again, Author in the Room is a monthly program that takes place on the third Wednesday of every month at 2 p.m. Eastern Time. And our next call will take place, I believe, on July 15th. Our featured author at that time will be Dr. Charles Morin. And again, he will be discussing cognitive behavioral therapy singly and combined with medication for persistent insomnia. Again, Author in the Room is sponsored uh, both by the Journal of the American Medical Association and the Institute for Healthcare Improvement, an interactive conference call to help accelerate the translation of research into practices to improve clinical care. Thanks again to all of you for being part of Author in the Room today. Have a great day, and we hope to see you next month. Take care now.